Welcome to Subtle Beast, everybody. I am your host, Foltz. With me, as always, my co-host and partner in crime, Mr. Steve Apostolopoulos. How are you, brother? Feeling good tonight, Foltz. How are you, man? I'm feeling good. I feel real good. It's getting a little cold in our parts, but, you know, I don't really like it, so. Not not that cold, though. It's not like feel it in your bones cold. No, it's, it's not that cold. As a matter of fact, uh, me and Steve have uh, been out hunting recently, and the uh, problem has been is... It hasn't been cold enough. Some of the deer haven't been moving in our normal spot where we're usually, uh, you know, bringing home some backstraps. That's true. But uh, we still got some season to go, so we're looking forward to it. But uh, so talking about <clears throat> going into tonight's topic, which we're going to be talking about fluoride, obviously. Um, Steve, do you recall back? Oh, I would say probably. As early as probably like fourth grade, the dental hygienist used to come in. Um, hopefully, people, our listeners can relate. Um, maybe this probably happened at your school, uh, but they would come in, the dental hygienist would have like this big pump. She'd get out the Dixie cups and, and pass it out to everybody, and then they'd make you swish it in your mouth. You had to turn your cup upside down on the paper towel, and it was just god awful. I do have a negative connotation with it. I remember the whole thing. I can see the cart that she used to use when she would come in. And, yeah, I do remember fluoride getting passed out through the whole classroom. I think it was a minute. that You would have it on the clock. They would time you, put it in, flip the cup over on top of the paper towel, and then, you know, a minute would go by and spit the fluoride back in the cup afterwards. But I do, I do remember it being terrible. Oh, it was enough to make you sick. And it almost looked like, uh, it was like this light green. It almost resembled like that high C ecto cooler. It almost resembles like a cleaning solution. Yeah. I mean, it totally made you want to gag like that. That's for sure. Um, I, would, I can remember looking around and always being jealous of like the one kid's parents who didn't sign the form. And he's just <laughs> sitting there smiling, just knowing he didn't have to take it. I actually, when I was a kid, I, um, I had cavities, but I mean, probably more cavities than other kids. That's a lot to admit, but I did. And my, uh, pediatric dentist prescribed me like an extra tube that was like a, a you know, you brush your teeth and then afterwards you would have this tube that was just like a clear gel that you would put on your toothbrush and then you would put it all over your teeth and it was... The, the messed up part about that was it would it would when you spit it out it would kind of stay right there right so you could never really get it all out of your mouth but I took a ton of fluoride when I was a kid yeah my dentist as a kid he had offered they had said that they had some solution that they, they would like paint on your teeth and that you would never get cavities again what yeah um, unfortunately I could never, I couldn't make it through the thing because they would put these big rubber stoppers in the back of your mouth back <clears throat> in the 80s and it was just like, oh, and I have a really bad gag reflex. And my dentist, I mean, he wasn't the nicest guy. I mean, I didn't like him. I used to fear, I used to hate going to the dentist because I, I still don't like going to the dentist today because of it. But uh, he would, yeah, was yelling, we can't finish this procedure. You can't stop, like, sorry, I can't stop gagging. Right, yeah, that does sound terrible. Yeah, so, uh, you know, I was one of those kids sitting in the classes, you know, like we said, with the, with the fluoride and, uh, you know. Did, the, when you were a dentist, did your dentist have a happy gas? 
Yes. Yeah, my dentist had happy gas. I remember that. My dentist currently doesn't. Yeah, well, I haven't had it since I was a kid. Yeah, I was going to say, did they even do that for adults? No, I guess upon request, maybe. Who knows? Yeah. But uh, all these years through elementary school and even to this day, most toothpastes are still including fluoride. And uh, what we're going to break down tonight um, is a is a good study that was done by a, by a Dr. Gary Knoll. Uh, his company's called Global Research, and uh, they did an excellent job looking into uh, the dangers and uh, potentially fatal co- uh, uh, diseases that uh, the fluoride can uh, can potentially cause. So we're going to get into that uh, right now. So there's nothing like a glass of cool, clear water to quench one's thirst. But the next time you or your child reaches for one, you might want to question whether that water is in fact too toxic to drink. If your water is fluoridated, the answer may be yes. For decades, we've been told a lie, a lie that has led to the deaths of hundreds of thousands of Americans and the weakening of the immune systems of tens of millions. This lie is called fluoridation, a process we were led to believe was a safe and effective method of protecting teeth from decay is in fact a fraud. For decades, it's been shown that fluoridation is neither essential for good health nor protective of teeth. What it does is poison the body. We should all at this point be asking how and why public health policy and American media continue to live with and perpetuate this scientific sham. Today, more than ever, evidence of fluoride's toxicity is entering the public sphere. The summer of 2012 saw the publication of a systematic review and meta-analysis by researchers at Harvard University that explored the link between exposures to fluoride and neurological and cognitive function among children. The report pulled data from over 27 studies, many of them from China, carried out over the course of 22 years. The results were published in the Journal of Environmental Health and Scientists showed a strong connection between exposure to fluoride in drinking water and decreased IQ scores in children. The team concluded that the results suggest that fluoride may be a developmental neurotoxin that affects brain development at exposures much below that 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 cause toxicity in adults. The newest scientific data suggests that the damaging effects of fluoride extend to the reproductive health as well. A 2013 study published in the journal Archives of Toxicology showed a link between fluoride exposure and male infertility in mice. The study's findings suggest that sodium fluoride impairs the ability of sperm cells in mice to normally fertilize egg through a process known as chemotaxis. This is the latest in more than 60 scientific study on animals that have identified an association between male infertility and fluoride exposure. Adding more fuel to the controversy is a recent investigative report by the Natural News exposing how the chemical used to fluoridate United States water systems today are a form of industrial waste. Disturbingly, the report details that some Chinese vendors of fluoride advertise on their website that their product can be used as an adhesive, an insecticide, as well as a flux for soldier or soldering and welding. 
One Chinese manufacturer, Shanghai Polme Commodities Ltd., which produces fluoride destined for municipal water reserves in the United States, notes on their website that the fluoride is highly corrosive to human skin and harmful to people's respiratory organs. There are many signs in recent years that indicate growing skepticism over fluoridation. The New York Times reported in 2011 that in previous four years, about 200 jurisdictions across the U.S. moved to cease water fluoridation. A panel composed of scientists and health professionals in Fairbanks, Alaska, recently recommended ceasing fluoridation of the county water supply after concluding... that the addition of fluoride to an already naturally fluoridated reserve could pose health risks to 700,000 residents. To move to the end, fluoridation would save the county an estimated $205,000 annually. The city of Portland made headlines in 2013 when it voted down a measure to fluoridate its water supply. The citizens of Portland have rejected introducing the chemical to drinking water on three separate occasions since the 1950s. Portland remains the largest city in the United States (coughs) to shun fluoridation. The movement against fluoridation has gained traction overseas as well. In 2013, Israel's Ministry of Health committed to a countrywide phase-out of fluoridation. The decision came after Israel's Supreme Court deemed the, uh, the existing health regulations requiring fluoridation to be based on science that is outdated and no longer widely accepted. Wow, this is just getting, getting interesting. It's getting, it's getting bad. Well, I mean, it's very... It's got my attention. Definitely does. It, sh- it should by now. It's disturbing, and I can't believe that it's occurring in America today. And it's just, and we're, we're basically buying other countries' toxic waste so that we can dump into our water. I can't, I can't believe in this woke society that we're allowing mass medication in that way. Well, that's why we need to spread subtle beast as far as we can. Let's get more people woke. So the government of the Australian state of Queensland eliminated $14 million in funding for its statewide fluoridation campaign. The decision, which was executed by the Liberal National Party government, forced local councils to vote on whether or not to introduce fluoride to their water supplies. Less than two months after the decision came down, several communities, including the town of Carnes, halted fluoridation. As a result, nearly 200,000 Australians will no longer be exposed to fluoride in their drinking water. An ever-growing number of institutions and individuals are questioning the wisdom of fluoridation. At the fore of the movement are thousands of scientific authorities and healthcare professionals who are speaking out about the hazards of the damaging additive. As of November, a group of over 4,500 professionals, including 361 dentists and and 562 medical doctors, have added their names to a petition aimed at ending fluoridation, started by the Fluoride Action Network. Among the prominent signatories are Nobel laureate Arvard Carlson and William Marcus, Ph.D., who served as the chief toxicologist of the EPA Water Division. He would know. That's messed up if the chief toxicologist of the EPA Water Division signed the petition. 
Exactly. The above sampling of recent news items on fluoride brings into sharp focus just how urgent it is to carry out a critical reassessment of the mass fluoridation campaign that currently affects hundreds of millions of Americans. In order to better understand the massive deception surrounding this toxic chemical, we must look back to the sordid history of how fluoride was first introduced. We would not purposely add arsenic to our water supply, and we would not purposely add lead, but we do add fluoride. The fact is that fluoride is more toxic than lead and just slightly less toxic than arsenic. These words of Dr. John Yemianonis may come as a shock to you because if you're like most Americans, you have a positive association with fluoride. You may envision tooth protection, strong bones, and a government that cares about your dental needs. What you've probably never been told is that fluoride added to drinking water and toothpaste is a crude industrial waste product of aluminum and fertilizer industries and a substance toxic enough to be used as rat poison. How is it that Americans have learned to love an environmental hazard? This phenomenon can be attributed to a carefully planned marketing program begun even before the Grand Rapids, Michigan, became the first community to officially fluoridate its water in 1945. As a result of this ongoing campaign, nearly two-thirds of the nation has enthusiastically followed Grand Rapids' example. But this push for fluoridation has less to do with the concern for America's health and more to do with the nation's well-being. The first thing you have to understand about fluoride is that it's the problem child of the industry. Its toxicology was recognized at the beginning of the Industrial Revolution when, in the, in the 1850s, iron and copper factories discharged it into the air and poisoned plants and animals and people. The problem was exasperated in 1920s when rapid industrialization growth meant massive pollution. Medical writer, writer Joel Griffiths explains that it was abundantly clear to both industry and government that spectacular U.S. industrial expansion and the economic and military power and vast profits it promised would necessitate releasing millions of tons of waste fluoride into the environment. That's crazy. I mean, the one part where they were saying, I mean, how could how could we not know this, or how could we be allowing this, or but or how could we have accepted this as something good? We were told our whole lives fluoride's good to protect your teeth. That would be like if if you had a child and you kept it completely in seclusion, and you always told it, and you lived like in the wild. Every time like a bear came in the yard, you'd be like, they're so nice. <laughs> they're really cuddly and then you know as it gets older and it gets oh, i know this bear is nice and it goes out and it gets mauled right that's basically what's going on here and pretty much it is they're teaching us oh, it's good you know fluoride it keeps you and uh what we're finding is complete opposite <laughs> so uh, their biggest fear <clears throat> was that uh if serious injury to the people were established lawsuits alone could prove devastating to companies 
Now, while public outcry could force industry-wide government regulations, billions in pollution control costs, and even mandatory changes in high-fluoride raw materials and profitable technologies. At first, industry could dispose of fluoride legally only in small amounts by selling it to the insecticide and rat poison manufacturers. Then a commercial outlet was devised in the 1930s when a connection was made between water supplies bearing traces of fluoride and lower rates of tooth decay. Griffiths writes that this was not a scientific breakthrough, but rather a part of a public disinformation campaign by the aluminum industry to convince the public that fluoride was safe and good. Industry's need prompted Alcoa-funded scientist Gerald J. Cox to announce that the present trend toward complete removal of fluoride from water may need some reversal. Griffiths writes, the big news in Cox's announcement was that this apparently worthless byproduct had not only been proven safe, quote-unquote, in low doses, but actually beneficial. It might reduce cavities in children. A proposal was in the air to add fluoride to the entire nation's drinking water, while the dose to each individual would be low. Fluoridation on a national scale would require the annual addition of hundreds of thousands of tons of fluoride to the country's drinking water. Government and industry, especially Alcoa, strongly supported intentional water fluoridation, made possible a master public relations stroke, one that could keep scientists and, public and the public off fluoride's case for years to come. If the leaders of dentistry, medicine, and public health could be persuaded to endorse fluoride in the public's drinking water, proclaiming to the nation that there was a wide margin of safety, how were they going to turn around later and say that the industry's fluoride pollution was dangerous? Well, probably they were being funded by some people in the beginning to say that, it, and then they didn't have that funding anymore. So it's just like... Uh, it was, a, it was a slippery slope. You can't say that it's okay to put it in your drinking water, but then when the industry is producing so much fluoride and they say, well, this is a, a dangerous, toxic waste. Well, that's like when the, the, that guy from, uh, where, what's the place that has the horrible drinking water? Uh, Flint, Michigan. Yeah, Flint, Michigan. And that guy was coming on TV saying, the water is completely safe to drink. You don't got to wait. He's like, I would drink it. And the guy came out and was like, here's a glass. And he was like, well, he didn't drink it. They were lighting it on fire. Yeah, it's crazy. All right, let me see. Where, 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 where was I now? Let's see. Uh, public relations story. One that could be. Uh, okay, uh, here we go. As for the public, if fluoride could be introduced as health enhancing substance that should be added to the environment for children's sake, those opposing it would look like quacks and lunatics. But back at the Mellon Institute, Alcoa's Pittsburgh Industrial Research Lab, this news was galvanic. Alcoa-sponsored biochemist Gerald J. Cox immediately fluoridated some lab rats in a study and concluded that fluoride reduces cavities and that the case should be regarded as proved. In a historic moment in 1939, the first public proposal that the U.S. should fluoridate the water supplies was made, not by a doctor or a dentist, but by Cox, an industry scientist working for a company threatened by fluoride damage claims. Once the plan was put into action, in, into action, industry was buoyant. They had finally found the channel for fluoride that they were looking for, and they were even cheered on by dentists, government agencies, and the public. Chemical Week, a publication for the chemical industry, <clears throat> described the tenure of the times. 
all over the country, slide rules are getting warm and waterworks. Engineers figure the cost of adding fluoride to the water supplies. They are riding a trend urged upon them by the U.S. Public Health Service, the American Dental Association, the state dental health directors, various state and local health bodies, and vocal women's club from coast to coast. It adds up to a nice piece of business on all sides, and many firms are cheering that the PHS and similar groups as they plump for increasing adoption of fluoridation. Wow. Yeah, good business doesn't necessarily mean good health. Well, if you ever want to know why any company's doing anything, just look who's sponsoring them, who's, who's, who's donating money, and they have to make that public knowledge. And once you follow that money, everything becomes abundantly clear. You can see which senators are passing which bills. Absolutely, you can. <laughs> and we're basing this entire uh, perception off of science from 1939. Yeah. <laughs> It's got to be better than that now. Uh, I, you, but it's not. <laughs> <laughs> Such overwhelming acceptance allowed government and industry to proceed hastily, albeit irresponsibly. The Grand Rapids experiment was supposed to take 15 years, during which time health benefits and hazards were to be studied. In 1946, however, just one year into the experiment, six more U.S. cities adopted the process. By 1947, 87 more communities were treated. Popular demand was the official reason for this unscientific haste. The general public and its leaders did support the cause, but only after massive government public relations campaigns spearheaded by Edward L. Bernays a nephew of Sigmund Freud. Bernays, a public relations pioneer, who had been called the original spin doctor, was a masterful PR strategist. As a result of his influence, Griffiths writes, almost overnight, the popular image of fluoride, which at the time was being widely sold as rat and bug poison, became that of a beneficial provider of gleaming smiles, absolutely safe and good for children bestowed by a benevolent paternal government. Its opponents were permanently engraved on the public mind as crackpots and right-wing loonies. Griffiths explains that while opposition to fluoridation is usually associated with right-wingers, this picture is not totally accurate. He provides an interesting historical perspective on the anti-fluoridation stance. Fluoridation attracted opponents from every point on the continuum of politics and sanity. The prospect of the government mass-medicating the water supplies with a well-known rat poison to prevent a non-lethal disease flipped the switches of delusionals across the country, as well as generating concern among responsible scientists, doctors, and the citizens. Moreover, by a fortuitous twist in circumstances, Fluoride's natural opponents on the left were alienated from the rest of the opposition. Oscar Ewing, a Federal Security Agency administrator, was a Truman Fair dealer who pushed many progressive programs such as nationalized medicine. Fluoridation was lumped with his proposals. Inevitably, it was attacked by conservatives as a manifestation of creeping socialism, while the left rallied to its support. Later, during the McCarthy era, 
the left was further alienated from the opposition when extreme right-wing groups, including the John Birch Society and the KKK, raved that fluoridation was a plot by the Soviet Union or communists in the government to poison American brain cells. It was a simple task for promoters, under the guidance of the original spin doctor, to paint all opponents as deranged, and they played this angle to the hilt. Actually, many of the strongest opponents originally started out as proponents, but changed their minds after a close look at the evidence, and many opponents became... And many opponents came to the view that fluoridation, not as a communist plot, but simply as a capitalist-style con job of, ec- of epic proportions. Some could be termed early environmentalists, such as the physician George L. Walbut and Frederick B. Exner, who first documented government industry complicity in hiding the hazards of fluoride pollution from the public. Walbut and Exner risked their careers in a clash with fluoride defenders only to see their cause buried in toothpaste ads. By 1950, fluoridation's image was a sterling one, and there was not much science could do at this point. The Public Health Service was flu- service was fluoridation's main source of funding as well as its promoter, and therefore caught in a fundamental conflict of interest. If fluoridation were found to be unsafe and ineffective and laws were repealed, the organization feared a loss of face since scientists, politicians, and dental groups and physicians unanimously supported it. Wow. See that right there it is. They're only worried about their their investment. So 100%. If they come back, oh, wow, we stood behind it. They can be like, well, yeah, the company revealed that it's now dangerous, but you supported it from the get-go. You didn't have any further investigation into anything, and we're just supposed to take this at face value. But you know what? There's people in the in the high positions, like when we when we did the episode on Dupont, we we're talking about the EPA. Nothing's gonna happen to everybody because if they're not on the take, they simply will just become so that they don't say anything or say the wrong thing. They're all in too deep. Yeah. Now, studies concerning its effects were not undertaken. The Oakland Tribune noted this when it stated that the public health officials have often suppressed scientific doubts about fluoridation. Now, Walbutt sums up the situation when he says that from the beginning, the controversy over fluoridating water supplies was a political, not a scientific health issue. The marketing of fluoride continues. In 1983, a letter from the Environmental Protection Agency, then Deputy Assistant Administrator for Water, Rebecca Hammer, writes that the EPA regards fluoridation as an ideal environmental solution to a long-standing problem. By recovering byproduct fluorosilic acid from fertilizer manufacturing, water and air pollution are minimized and water utilities have a low-cost source of fluoride available to them. A 1992 policy statement from the Department of Health and Human Services says a recent comprehensive PHS review of the benefits and potential health risks of fluoride has concluded that the practice of fluoridating community water supplies is safe and effective. And according to the CDC website, about 200 million Americans in 16,500 communities are exposed to fluoridated water. Out of the 50 largest cities in the U.S., 43 have been fluoridated. 
have fluoridated water. To help celebrate uh, fluoride's widespread use, the media recently reported on the 50th anniversary of the fluoridation in Grand Rapids. Newspaper article entitled, Fluoridation, a Shining Public Health Success. And after 50 years, fluoride still works with a smile. Painted glowing pictures of the practice. Had investigators looked more closely, though they might have learned the children in in Michigan, an unfluoridated control city, had an equal drop in dental decay. That might also have learned of the other studies that dispute the supposed wonders of the fluoride. Now, the big hope for fluoride was its ability to immunize children's developing teeth against cavities. Rates of dental caries were supposed to plummet in areas where water was treated. Yet decades of experience and worldwide research have contradicted this expectation numerous times. Here are just a few examples. In British Columbia, only 11% of the population drinks fluoridated water, as opposed to 40 to 70% in other Canadian regions. Yet British Columbia has the lowest rate of tooth decay in Canada. In addition, the lowest rate of dental caries within the province are found in areas that do not have their water supplies fluoridated. According to a Sierra Club study, people in unfluoridated developing nations have fewer dental caries than those living in industrial nations. As a result, they concluded that fluoride is not essential to dental health. And when it says caries, it means uh, cavities. Uh, In 1986 and 87, the largest study on fluoridation and tooth decay ever was performed. The subjects were 39,000. Here's, this is what we were talking about, right? This is us. This is us. The subjects were 39,000 school children between five and seven living in 84 areas around the country. A third of the places were fluoridated. A third were partially fluoridated, and a third were not. Results indicate no statistically significant differences in dental decay between fluoridated and unfluoridated cities. A World Health Organization survey reports a decline of dental decay in Western Europe, which is 98% unfluoridated. They state that the Western Europe's declining dental decay rates are equal and sometimes better than those in the U.S., that's a big study. 39,000 school kids. Yeah. And if you're looking at Europe, 98% of it is unfluoridated. Man, well, why are we putting that in our water? I think it's, uh, I mean, if, you, if you're out to reduce numbers or to keep people's minds at rest and not overthinking, it's probably a brilliant idea if you're a sick mastermind. I, I concur. Let's get into some more of these numbers here. A University of Arizona study yielded surprising results when they found that more fluoride a child drinks, the more cavities appear in their teeth. Although all Native American reservations are fluoridated, children living there have much higher incidence of dental decay and other oral health problems than do children living in other U.S. communities. In light of all the evidence, fluoride proponents now make more modest claims. For example, in 1988, the ADA professed that a 40 to 60% cavity reduction could be achieved with the help of fluoride. Now, they claim an 18 to 25% reduction. Other promoters mention a 12% decline in tooth decay. And some former supporters are even beginning to question the need for fluoridation altogether. In 1990, a National Institute 
for Dental Research Report stated that it is likely that if cavities in children remain at low levels or decline further, the necessity of continuing the current variety and extent of fluoride-based prevention programs will be questioned. Most government agencies, however, continue to ignore the scientific evidence and to market fluoridation by making fictional claims about its benefits and pushing for its expansion. For instance, according to the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, national surveys of oral health dating back several decades document continuing decreases in tooth decay in children, in adults, and in senior citizens. Nevertheless, there are parts of the country and particular populations that remain without protection. For these reasons, the USPHS has set a national goal that 75% of persons served by community water systems will have access to optimally fluoridated drinking water. Currently, this figure sits just about 60%. So the target goal is both desirable and yet challenging. Based on past progress and continuing evidence of effectiveness and safety of this public health measure. This statement is flawed on several counts. First, as we've seen, research does not support the effectiveness of fluoridation for preventing tooth disease. Second, purported benefits are supposedly for children, not adults and senior citizens. At about age 13, any advantage fluoridation might offer comes to an end, and less than 1% of the fluoridated water supply reaches this population. And third, fluoridation has never been proven safe. On the contrary, several studies directly link fluoridation to skeletal fluorosis, dental fluorosis, and several rare forms of cancer. This alone should frighten us away from its use. I'm... Clear, clear, you can't make it any more clear than that. I mean, if you're putting something in the water that's making cancer, that's creating cancer, it's creating uh, skeletal fluorosis, which we'll define, and dental fluorosis, which we'll define here in a little bit. Where's the Surgeon General? I mean, where's like where's the protective agencies that are supposed to be looking out for us? Oh, they don't exist, yo. Yeah, it seems it seems as if we're. The, the population is the one that's taking the, the bad end of this deal. You think any of the top 1% of the 1% have any fluoride in their water? No, they're drinking Fiji. Yeah. Uh, only a small margin separates supposedly beneficial fluoride levels from amounts that are known to cause adverse effects. A Dr. Patrick, a former antibiotics research scientist at the National Institute of Health, describes this predicament. There is a very low margin of safety involved in fluoridating water. A concentration of about 1 ppm, which is parts per million, is recommended. In several countries, severe fluorosis has been documented from water supplies containing only 2 or 3 ppm. In the development of drugs, we generally insist on a therapeutic index, or a margin of safety, of the order of 100. A therapeutic index of two or three is totally unacceptable, yet that is what has been proposed for public water supplies. Other countries argue that even one ppm is not a safe concentration. Canadian studies, for example, imply that children under three should have no fluoride whatsoever. 
The Journal of Canadian Dental Association states that fluoride supplements should not be recommended for children less than three years old. Since these supplements contain the same amount of fluoride as water does, they're basically saying that children under the age of three shouldn't be drinking fluoridated water at all, under any circumstances. Japan reduced the amount of fluoride in their drinking water to one-eighth of what is recommended by the U.S. Instead of one milligram per liter, they use less than 15 hundredths of a milligram per liter, as the upper limit allows. I'm starting to think that big pharma is involved somehow, too. Because if the more sick you're going to make people, I mean, the medical industry, they're backing it because, oh, well, now we're going to get an influx of patients and then we can prescribe more drugs and then the pharmaceutical companies can send me and my new bride on an all-exclusive paid vacation to Cancun. And it's all just one sick, twisted attempt at either killing us all off or most likely it's just money. They, don't, they just want money at all costs and, and power, most, most, most of all. Think about how powerful the steel industry was in America at one time. Yeah. And this Alcoa that's producing all this aluminum has nowhere to go with the fluoride. They might, they're thinking we might as well dump it in the water. We might as well sell it back to the government and dump it in the water. Yeah, because that way, because they were probably going to dump it in the water anyway. <laughs> and so they're like, well, this way it's legal and we're making money. Now, even supposing that low concentrations are safe, there's no way to control how much fluoride different people consume, as some take it in a lot more than others. For example, laborers, athletes, diabetics, and those living in a hot or dry regions can expect to drink more water and therefore more fluoride than others. Due to such wide variations in water consumption, and it's impossible to scientifically control what doses of fluoride a person receives via the water supply. Another concern is that fluoride is not found only in drinking water. It's everywhere. Fluoride is found in foods that are processed with it, <clears throat> which in the United States include nearly all bottled drinks and canned foods. Researchers writing in the Journal of Clinical Pediatric Dentistry have found that fruit juices, in particular, contain significant amounts of fluoride. In one study, a variety of popular juices and juice blends were analyzed, and it was discovered that 42% of the samples examined had more than 1 ppm of fluoride, with some brands of grape juice containing much higher levels, up to 6.8 ppm. The authors cite the common practice of using fluoride containing insecticide in growing grapes as a factor in these high levels, and they suggest that the fluoride con content of beverages be printed on their labels as other nutritional information. Considering how much juice some children ingest, and the fact that youngsters often insist on particular brands that they consume day after day, labeling seems like a prudent idea. But beyond this larger issue, that is the study brings up, it is, wise, is it wise to subject children and others who are heavy juice drinkers to additional fluoride in their water? No, definitely not. <laughs> definitely not. Now, here's a little, <clears throat> pardon me, <clears throat> here's a little publicized reality. Cooking can greatly increase a food's fluoride content. Peas, for example, contain 12 micrograms of fluoride when raw and 1,500 micrograms after they are cooked in fluoridated water, which is a tremendous difference. Also, we should keep in mind that fluoride is an ingredient in pharmaceuticals, aerosols, insecticides, and pesticides, and of course, 
toothpaste. It's interesting to note that in the 1950s, fluoridated toothpaste were required to carry warnings on their labels, saying that they were not to be used in areas where water was already fluoridated. Crest Toothpaste went as far as to write, Caution, children under six should not use Crest. These regulations were dropped in 1958, although no new research was available to prove that overdose hazard was no longer <coughs> existed. Today, common fluoride levels in toothpaste are 1,000 ppm. Research chemist Woodfun Ligon notes that swallowing a small amount adds substantially to fluoride intake. Dentists say that children commonly ingest 0.5 milligrams of fluoride a day from toothpaste. This inevitability raises another issue. How safe is all this fluoride? According to scientists and informed doctors such as Dr. John Lee, it's not safe at all. Dr. Lee first took a took an anti-fluoridation stance back in 1972 when as chairman as the Environmental Health Committee for a local medical society, he was asked to state their position on the subject. He stated that it, after investigating the references given by both pro- and anti-fluoridationists, the group discovered three important things. And Steve's going to tell us all about them. One, the claims of benefit of fluoride, the 60% reduction of cavities, was not established by any of these studies. Two, we found that the investigations into toxic side effects of fluoride have not been done in any way that was acceptable. And three, we discovered that the estimate of the amount of fluoride in the food chain in the total daily fluoride intake had been measured in 1943 and not since then. By adding the amount of fluoride that we now have in our food chain, which comes from food processing with fluoridated water, plus all the fluoridated toothpaste that was not present in 1943, we found that the daily intake of fluoride was far in excess of what was considered optimal. What happens when fluoride intake exceeds the optimal? The inescapable fact is that this substance has been associated with severe health problems, ranging from skeletal and dental fluorosis to bone fractures to fluoride poisoning and even cancer. Skeletal fluorosis. When fluoride is ingested, approximately 93% of it is absorbed into a bloodstream. A good part of the material is excreted, but the rest is deposited into the bones and in the teeth and is capable of causing a crippling skeletal fluorosis. This is a condition that can, be, that can damage the musculoskeletal and nervous systems and result in muscle wasting. It can result in limited joint motion, spine deformities, and calcification of the ligaments as well as neurological deficits. <laughs> That's crazy. That sounds horrible. It does because you know what I have. Uh, I have an autoimmune disease that um, uh, that sometimes has calcifications not in, not in the ligaments but the joints, and I'm starting to think fluoride from a kid that ecto cooler. Yes, that I blame it all had, on them. Might have had something to do with it. Well, I recently was uh, watching something that they were talking about. Uh, like 90% of autoimmune diseases are basically environmental. I and could believe that. 100%. And you know what? 
allergies, and I know that they say are, they're cyclical and sometimes they they are not present in the young and as you get older, they're worse. But man, I don't remember having allergies the way that I do now. My allergies are terrible and they're all year round now. They used to be seasonal. Now. Right. You get a little hay in the springtime, you get some red eyes, yeah. it'd be no big deal. I think mine have ramped up actually as the weather's gotten colder here. I, mine go I, daily, like up and down. Heard. When fluoride is ingested, oh, we got that part already. Large mm-hmm. numbers of people in Japan, China, India, the Middle East, and Africa have been diagnosed with skeletal fluorosis from drinking naturally fluoridated water. In India alone, nearly a million people suffer from the affliction. While only a dozen cases of skeletal fluorosis have been reported in the United States, chemical and engineering news states that critics of the EPA standards speculate that there are probably have been many more cases of fluorosis, even crippling, but few have been reported in the literature because most doctors in the U.S. have not studied this disease and do not know how to diagnose it. Radiological changes in the bone occur when fluoride exposure is 5 milligrams a day, according to the late George Walbut, author of Fluoridation, The Great Dilemma. While this 5 milligram level is the amount of fluoride ingested by most people living in fluoridated areas, the number increases for diabetics and laborers who can ingest up to 20 milligrams of fluoride daily. In addition, a survey conducted by the Department of Agriculture shows that 3% of the U.S. population drinks 4 liters or more of water every day. I could never do that. No way. If these individuals live in areas where the water contains fluoride, at that's a level, probably included with your food. At a level of four parts per million, I, I mean that's two two liters. That's yeah. a that's a ton of water. Allowed by the EPA, they are ingesting sixteen milligrams a day from the consumption of water alone. That's that's water alone. Oh wow! And are thus at a great greater risk for getting skeletal fluorosis. According to a 1989 National Institute for Dental Research study, 1 to 2% of children living in areas fluoridated at one part per million develop dental fluorosis, that is, permanently stained brown mottled teeth. Up to 23% of children living in areas naturally fluoridated at four parts per million develop severe dental fluorosis. Other research gives higher figures. The publication Health Effects of Ingested Fluoride put out by National Academy of Sciences reports that in areas with optimally fluoridated water at one part per million, either naturally or added, dental fluorosis levels in recent years ranged from 8 to 51%. Recently, a prevalence of slightly over 80% of was reported in children from 12 to 14 in Augusta, Georgia. Wow. The way they described what the teeth look like when you have that dental fluorosis. I can remember some kids' teeth back in uh, elementary school, maybe early junior high, that they're like brown all around the outside, maybe like white right in the center, just like a speck. It was just like, what do you, don't you ever brush your teeth? Like where? Maybe too much. What kind of house did you come from? (laughs) Yeah, where do you come from? Just too much fluoride. <laughs> Clearly. Fluoride is noteworthy. A chemical additive. 
in that it officially acknowledges acknowledge benefit and damage levels are about the same. Writing in the progressive science journalist Daniel Grossman <clears throat> uh, elucidates this point. Through many beneficial chemicals are dangerous when consumed at excessive levels. Fluoride is unique because the amount that dentists recommend to prevent cavities is about the same as the amount that causes dental fluorosis. Although the American Dental Association and the government consider dental fluorosis only a cosmetic problem, the American Journal of Public Health says the brittleness in moderately and severely modeled teeth may be associated with elevated cavity levels. In other words, in these cases, the fluoride is causing the exact problem that it's supposed to prevent. Yamayanis adds, in highly naturally fluoridated areas, the teeth actually crumble as a result. These are the first visible symptoms of fluoride poisoning. Also, when considering dental fluorosis, there are factors beyond the physical that you can't ignore. The negative psychological effects of having moderately to severely mottled teeth, these were recognized in a 1984 National Institute of Mental Health panel that looked into this problem. A telling trend is that TV commercials for toothpaste and toothpaste tubes themselves are now downplaying fluoride content as a virtue. This was noted in an article in Sarasota, Florida, ECO Report, whose author, George Glasser, feels that manufacturers are distancing themselves from the additive because of fears of lawsuits. The climate is ripe for these, and Glasner points out that such a class action suit has already been filed in England against the manufacturers of fluoride-containing products on behalf of children suffering from dental fluorosis. Now, one time, fluoride therapy was recommended for building denser bones and preventing fractures associated with osteoporosis. Now, several articles in peer-reviewed journals suggest that fluoride actually causes more harm than good, as it's associated with bone breakage. Three studies reported in the Journal of American Medical Association showed links between hip fractures and fluoride. Findings here were, for instance, that there is a small but significant increase in the risk of, fr of hip fractures in both men and women exposed to artificial fluoridation at 1 ppm. In addition, the New England Journal of Medicine reports that people given fluoride to cure their osteoporosis actually wound up with an increased non-vertible fracture rate. Austrian researchers also found that fluoride tablets make bones more susceptible to fractures. The U.S. National Research Council states that the U.S. hip fracture rate is now the highest in the world. Louis V. Avioli, professor at the Washington University School of Medicine, says in 1987, review of the subject, sodium fluoride therapy is accompanied by so many medical complications and side effects that it's hardly worth exploring in depth as a therapeutic mode for postmenopausal osteoporosis, since it fails to decrease the propensity for hip fractures and increases the incident of stress fractures and extremities. Jeez. In May 1992, 260 people were poisoned, and one man died in Hooper Bay, Alaska, after drinking water contaminated with 150 ppm of fluoride. The accident was attributed to poor equipment and unqualified operator. Was it a fluke? Not at all.
Over the years, the CDC has recorded several incidents of excessive fluoride permeating the water supply and sickening or killing people. We don't usually hear about these occurrences in the news reports, but interested citizens have learned the truth from data obtained under the Freedom of Information Act. And here is a partial list of toxic spills we have not been told about. Steve, let's go. Back in July of 1993 in Chicago, Illinois, three dialysis patients died and five experienced toxic reactions to the fluoridated water used in the treatment process. The CDC was asked to investigate, but to date there have been no press releases. In May of 1993, Kodiak, Alaska, the population was warned not to consume water due to high fluoride levels. They were also cautioned against boiling the water since this concentrates the substances and worsens the danger. Although equipment appeared to be functioning normally, 22 to 24 ppm of fluoride was found in the sample. Dang. In July, Marin County, California, a pump malfunction allowed too much fluoride into the Bon Tempe treatment plant. Two million gallons of fluoridated water were diverted to Phoenix Lake, elevating the lake surface by more than two inches and forcing some water over the spillway. That's so disgusting. Bennett Harbor, Michigan, a faulty pump allowed approximately 900 gallons of hydrofluorolic acid to leak into chemical storage building at the water plant. City engineer Roland Kluckow stated, the concentrated hydrofluorolic acid was so corrosive that it ate through more than two inches of concrete in the storage building. This water did not reach water consumers. Blefluoridation was stopped until June of 1993. The original equipment was only two years old. And that was a two-year span of time, from December 91 till June of 93. Oh, yeah, over. In Portgate, Michigan, after a fluoride injector pump failed, fluoride levels reached 92 ppm and resulted in approximately 40 children developing abdominal pains, sickness, vomiting, and diarrhea at a school arts and crafts show. November of 1979 in Annapolis, Maryland, one patient died and eight became ill after renal dialysis treatment. Symptoms included cardiac arrest, although they were resuscitated, hypotension, chest pain, difficulty breathing, and a whole gamut of intestinal problems. Patients do not Patients not on dialysis also reported nausea, headaches, cramps, and diarrhea with dizziness. The fluoride level was later found to be 35 ppm. The problem was traced to a valve at the water plant that had been left open all night. That shouldn't happen. No, I mean, who's, who's overlooking this? There's no regulations. Instead of addressing fluoridation's problematic safety record, officials have chosen to cover it up. For example, the ADA says in one booklet distributed to health agencies that fluoride feeders are designed to stop operating when a malfunction occurs. So prolonged overfluoridation becomes a mechanical impossibility. In addition, the information does reach the population after an accident is woefully inaccurate. A spill in Annapolis, Maryland placed thousands at risk, but official reports reduced the number to eight. Jeez. 
perhaps officials are afraid they will invite more lawsuits like the one for $480 million by the wife of a dialysis patient who became brain injured as a result of fluoride poisoning. Not all fluoride poisoning is accidental. For decades, industry has knowingly released massive quantities of fluoride into the air and water. Disenfranchised communities with people least able to fight back are often the victims. Medical writer Joe Griffiths relays this description of what industrial pollution can do, in this case, to a devastatingly poisoned Indian reservation. Cows crawled around the pastures on their bellies, inching along like giant snails, so crippled by bone disease they could not stand up. This was the only way they could graze. Some died kneeling after giving birth to stunted calves. Others kept on crawling until no longer able to chew because their teeth had crumbled down to the nerves and they began to starve. They were the cattle of the Mohawk Indians on the New York-Canadian St. Regis Reservation during the period between 1960 and 1975, when industrial pollution devastated the herd and along with it the Mohawks' way of life. Mohawk children, too, have shown signs of damage to bones and teeth. Mohawks filed a suit against the Reynolds Metals Company and the Aluminum Company of America, or Alcoa, in 1960, but ended up settling out of court when they received $650,000 for their cows. Fluoride is one of the industry's major pollutants, and no one remains immune to its effects. In 1989, 155,000 tons were being released annually into the air, and 500,000 tons a year were disposed of in our lakes, rivers, and oceans. So disgusting. Yeah, it is. That's just... Oh. It's so much. That is... That much of any chemical has to be bad for you. Oh, it definitely does. I mean, those cows, I don't know what kind of cows they were. If they were dairy cows... I hope nobody got that milk. That milk was probably like, God, it's cheese. If they were like crawling around on their knees. Because their legs were broken from being so. And they just left them out there. Didn't put them out of their misery. Right. And their teeth. They couldn't even eat because their teeth crumbled away. It's uh, Well, we're only, uh, you know, starting to crack what fluoride can do. Of course, it can cause cancer because there's numerous studies to demonstrate links between fluoridation and cancer. However, agencies promoting fluoride consistently refute or cover up these findings. In 1997, Dr. John Yamayanis and Dr. Dean Burke, former chief chemist at the National Cancer Institute, released a study that linked fluoridation to 10,000 cancer deaths per year in the U.S. Their inquiry, which compared cancer deaths in the 10 largest fluoridated American cities to those in the 10 largest unfluoridated cities between 1940 and 1950, discovered a 5% greater rate in fluoridated areas. The NCI disputed these findings, since an earlier analysis of theirs apparently failed to pick up on these extra deaths. Federal authorities claim that Yamayanis and Burke were in error, and that any increase was caused by statistical changes over the years in age, gender, and racial composition. In order to settle the question of whether or not fluoride is a carcinogen, a congressional subcommittee was instructed the National Toxicology Program to perform another investigation. The study due in 1980 was not released until 1990. 
What a deadline. <laughs> yeah. However, in 1986, while the study was delayed, the EPA raised the standard fluoride level in drinking water from 2.4 to 4 ppm. After this step, some of the government's own employees in the NFFE Local 2050 took what the Oakland Tribune termed the remarkable step of denouncing that action as political. When the NTP study results became known in early 1990, Union President Dr. Robert Canton, who works in the EPA's Toxic Substance Division, published a statement. It read in part, four years ago, NFFE Local 2050, which represents 1,100 professionals at the EPA headquarters, alerted then-administrator Lee Thomas to the fact that the scientific support documents for the fluoride and drinking water standard were fatally flawed. The fluoride juggernaut proceeded as it apparently had for the last 40 years without any regard for the facts or concerns for public health. EPA raised the allowed level of fluoride before the results of the rat mouse study ordered by Congress in 1977 was complete. Today, we find out how irresponsible that decision was. The results reported by NTP and explained today by Dr. Yamayanis are, as he notes, not surprising considering the vast amount of data that caused the animal study to be conducted in the first place. The results are not surprising to the NFFE Local 2050 either. Four years ago, we realized that the claim that there was no evidence that fluoride could cause genetic effects or cancer could not be supported by the shoddy document thrown together by the EPA contractor. Man, that EPA. Oh, man. They're the devil. <laughs> they, they, they just kowtow to these large corporations. Yeah, give me the money. They just don't have enough. I don't think they have the support. that They're not getting enough money to care enough to not cover it up. Maybe they don't even have anything to report on, so they're just like, just tell us what to do. Let's delay the study that was, uh, it was three years they were supposed to get the study done for a decade afterwards. Yeah, it's like having the test before you learn the material. Honestly, it's three-year study that took thirteen years to do. Somebody's getting paid off to delay that. Man, if you were supposed to do a study in nineteen eighty and you handed it in nineteen ninety, you should be <laughs> fired. It w- it was apparent to us that the EPA bowed to political pressure without having done an in-depth, independent analysis using in-house experts of the currently existing data that show fluoride causes genetic effects, promotes the growth, of, the growth of cancerous tissue, and is likely to cause cancer in humans. If the EPA had done so, it would have been readily apparent, as it was to Congress in 1977, that there were serious reasons to believe in a cancer threat. The behavior of the EPA in this affair raises questions about the integrity of the science that at the EPA and the role that professional scientists, lawyers, and engineers provide the interpretation of the available data and the judgments necessary to protect the public health and the environment. Are scientists at EPA there to arrange facts to fit preconceived conclusions? Does the agency have a responsibility to develop world-class experts in the risks posed by chemicals we are exposed to every day? Or Is it permissible for EPA to cynically shop around for contractors who will provide them the correct answers? What were the NTP study results? Out of 130 male rats, 
that ingested 45 to 79 ppm of fluoride, five developed osteosarcoma, a rare bone cancer. There were cases in both males and females at that dose of squamous cell carcinoma in the, mo- in the mouth. Both rats and mice had dose-related fluorosis of the teeth, and female rats suffered osteochlorosis of the long bones. When Yamianis analyzed the same data, he found mice with a particularly rare form of liver cancer known as heptocoliogia carcinoma. Nice one. This cancer is so rare, according to Yamianis, that the odds of its appearance in the study by chance are one in two million in male mice and about one in a hundred thousand in female mice. He also found precarcinogens, no, precancerous changes in oral squamous cells, an increase in squamous cells, tumors, and cancers, and thyroid follicular cell tumors as a result of increasingly levels of fluoride in the drinking water. On March 13th of 1990, New York Times article commented on the NTP findings. Previous animal tests suggesting that water fluoridation might pose risks to humans have been widely discounted as technically flawed, but the latest investigation carefully weeded out sources of experimental or statistical error. Many scientists say and cannot be discounted. In the same article, biologist Dr. Edwin Groth notes the important of this the importance of this study is that it is the first fluoride bioassay giving positive results in which the latest state of the art procedures have been rigorously applied and it has to be taken seriously. On February 22nd of 1990, the Medical Tribune, an international medical news weekly received by 125,000 doctors, offered the opinion of a federal scientist who preferred to remain anonymous. It is difficult to see how EPA can fail to regulate fluoride as a carcinogen in light of what the NTP has found. Osteochromos are extremely unusual result of rat carcinogens tests. Toxicologists tell me that the only other substance that has produced this is radium. The fact is that highly atypical form of cancer implicates fluoride as the cause. Also, osteosarcomosis osteosarcomas appeared to be dose-related and did not occur in controls, making it a clean study. Wow. What more do you need? I mean, crazy. So that guy wanted to remain anonymous for either one or two reasons. He was probably either still receiving money from the opposition. Or thought he was going to get killed. (laughs) That's what I was going to (laughs) say. Or he thought he was going to get whacked. Uh, yeah, yeah. So public health officials were quick to assure concerned public that there was nothing to worry about. The ADA said the occurrence of cancers in the lab may not be relevant to humans since the level of fluoridation in the experimental animal water was so high. 
But the Federal Register, which is the handbook of government practices, disagrees. The high exposure of experimental animals and toxic agents is necessary and a valid method of discovering possible carcinogenic hazards in man. To disavow the findings of this test would be to disavow those of all such tests, since they are all conducted according to the standard. As of February 5, 1990, Newsweek article pointed out, such megadosing is standard toxicological practice. It's the only way to detect an effect without using an impossibly large number of test animals to stand in for humans exposed to the substance. And as the Safer Water Foundation explains, higher doses are generally administered to test animals to compensate for the animal's shorter lifespan and because humans are generally more vulnerable than test animals on body weight basis. Several other studies link fluoride to genetic damage and cancer. An article in mutation research says that a study by Procter and Gamble, the very company that makes Crest toothpaste, Crest toothpaste, did research showing that one ppm fluoride causes genetic damage. Results were never published, but Procter and Gamble called them clean, meaning animals were supposedly free of malignant tumors. Not so, according to the scientists who believe some of the changes observed in the test animals could be interpreted as precancerous. Yaya Mayanis says that the Public Health Service sat on the data which were finally released via Freedom of Information Act request in 1989. Since they were biased, they had to try and cover up harmful effects, he says. But the data speaks for itself. Half of the amount of fluoride that is found in the New York City drinking water causes genetic damage. National Institute of Environmental Health Scientists publication, Environmental and Molecular Mutagenesis, also linked fluoride to a genetic toxicity when it stated that in cultured human and rodent cells, the weight of evidence leads to the conclusion that fluoride exposure results in increased chromosome aberrations. The result of this is not only birth defects, but the mutation of normal cells into cancer cells. The Journal of Carcinogenesis further states that fluoride not only has the ability to transform normal cells into cancer cells, but also has to enhance the cancer-causing properties of other chemicals. Surprisingly, the PHS put out a report called, called Review of Fluoride, Benefits and Risks, in which they showed a substantially higher incidence of bone cancer in young men exposed to fluoridated water compared to those who were not. The New Jersey Department of Health also found that the risk of bone cancer was about three times as high in fluoridated areas as in non-fluoridated areas. Despite cover-up attempts, the light of knowledge is filtering through to some enlightened scientists. Regarding animal tests, the director of the U.S. National Institute of Environmental Health Science, James Huff, does say that the reason these animals got few, uh, few osteosarcomas was because they were, they were given fluoride. Bone is the target organ for fluoride. Toxicologist William Marcus adds that fluoride is a carcinogen by any standard we use. I believe the EPA should act immediately to protect the public, not just on the cancer data, but on the evidence of bone fractures, arthritis, mute, uh, mutagenicity, and other effects. Jeez. I mean, they're coming out, they're just coming out and saying it. It's carcinogen. They should just now just come and knock on your door and just shoot you in the face. <laughs> I mean, it'd be a lot less painful, I think. It, it would, yeah, it would prevent that slow burn that this thing has created over generations exactly. of genetic damage. So, the challenge of eliminating fluoride. Given all the scientific challenges to the idea of the safety of fluoride, why does it remain a, a protected contaminant? 
As Susan Pear of the Center of Health Actions asks, even if fluoride in the water did reduce tooth decay, which it does not, how can the EPA allow a substance more toxic than Alar, red dye number three, the vinyl chloride to be injected purposely into our drinking water? This is certainly a logical question, and with all good science that seems to exist on the subject, you would think that there would be a great deal of interest in getting fluoride out of our water supply. Unfortunately, that hasn't been the case. As Dr. William Marcus, a senior science advisor in the EPA's Office of Drinking Water, has found, the top governmental priority has been to sweep the facts under the rug and, if need be, to suppress truth tellers, Marcus explains, that fluoride is one of the chemicals the EPA specifically regulates and that he was following the data coming in on fluoride very carefully when a determination was going to be made on whether the levels should be changed. He discovered that the data were not being heeded, but that was only the beginning of the story for him. Marcus recounts what had happened. The studies were done by Votel Northwest, and they showed that there was an increased level of bone cancer and other types of cancer in animals. In that same study, there were very rare liver cancers. According to the board-certified veterinary pathologists at the contractor, Botel, those really were very upsetting because they were hepocollegial carcinomas, very rare liver cancers. Then there were several other kinds of cancers that were found in the jaw and other places. I felt at the time that reporters were alarming, that the reports were alarming. They showed that the levels of fluoride that can cause cancers in animals are actually lower than the dose levels ingested in people who take lower amounts, but for longer periods of time. I went to a meeting that was held in the Research Triangle Park in April of 1990, in which the National Toxicological Program was presenting their review of the study. I went with several colleagues of mine, one of whom was a board-certified veterinarian and pathologist who originally reported the, hepa, the hepatocollegial carcinoma. As a separate entity in rats and mice, I asked him if he would look at the slides to see if that really was a tumor or if the pathologist at Botel and I had made an error. He told me after looking at the slide, it was in fact correct. At the meeting, every one of the cancers reported by the contractors had been downgraded by the, nat the National Toxicology Program. I've been in the toxicology business looking at studies of this nature for nearly 25 years, and I have never seen before every single cancer endpoint downgraded. I found that very suspicious and went to see an investigator in the Congress at the suggestion of my friend Bob Carton. This gentleman and his staff investigated very thoroughly and found that the scientists at the National Toxicology Program down at the Research Triangle Park had been coerced by their superiors to change their findings. Dang. Once Dr. Marcus acted on his findings, something ominous started to happen in his life. 
I wrote an internal memorandum and gave it to my supervisors. I waited for a month without hearing anything. Usually you get feedback in a week or so. I wrote another memo to a person who was my second line supervisor explaining that if there was even a slight chance of increased cancer in the general population, since 140 million people were potentially ingesting this material, that the deaths could be in the many thousands. Then I gave a copy of the memo to the fluoride work group who waited some time and then released it to the press. Once I got into the pre- once it got into the press, all sorts of things started happening at the EPA. I was getting disciplinary threats, being isolated, and all kinds of things, which ultimately resulted in them firing me on March 15th of 1992. Well, that sounds about right. That's what they would do. I'm surprised they didn't like kidnap his family, too, and hold him hostage. <laughs> yeah, you speak up and you get fired. Yeah. Now, once it got into the press, all sorts of things started happening at the EPA, which Steve had said. He was isolated and all things ultimately resulted in them firing him. In order to be reinstated at work, Dr. Marcus took his case to court. In the process, he learned that the government had engaged in various illegal activities, including 70 felony counts in order to get him fired. At the same time, those who committed perjury were not held accountable for it. In fact, they were rewarded for their efforts. When we finally got the EPA to the courtroom, they admitting to doing several things to get me fired. We had notes of a meeting that showed that fluoride was one of the main topics discussed and that it was agreed that they would fire me with the help of the inspector general. When we got them on the stand and they showed them the memorandum, they finally remembered and said, oh yes, we lied about that in our previous statement. Then they admitted to shredding more than 70 documents that they had in hand. Freedom of information requests, that's a felony. In addition, they charged me with stealing time from the government. They tried to show that I had been doing private work on the on government time and getting paid for it. When we came to court, I was able to show that the time cards they produced were forged and forged by the in- Inspector General staff. Dang. For all his efforts, Dr. Marcus was rehired, but nothing else has changed. The EPA was ordered to rehire me, which they did. They were given a whole series of requirements to be met, such as paying me my back pay, restoring leave, privileges, and sick leave and annual leave. The only thing they've done is put me back to work. They haven't given me any of those things that they were required to do. What is at the core of such ruthless tactics? John Yamayanis feels that the central concern of government is to protect industry and that the motivating force behind fluoride use is the need of certain businesses to dump their toxic waste products somewhere. They try to be inconspicuous in the disposal process and not make waves. As is normal, the solution to pollution is dilution. You're poison everyone a little bit rather than poison a few people a lot this way people don't know what's going on since the public health service was uh, promoted since the public health service has promoted the fluoride myth for over 50 years they're concerned about protecting their reputation so scientists like dr marcus who know about the dangers are intimidated into keeping silent otherwise they jeopardize their careers Dr. G, Dr. John Lee elaborates, back in 1943, the PHS stacked their professional careers on the benefits and safety of fluoride. It has since become bureaucrat, bureaucraticized. Any public health official who criticizes fluoride or even hints that it perhaps was an unwise decision is at risk of losing his career entirely. 
This has happened time and time again. Public health officials such as Dr. Gray in British Columbia and Dr. Colcon in New Zealand found no benefit from fluoridation. When they reported these results, they immediately lost their careers. This is what happens. The public health officials who speak out against fluoride are at great risk of losing their careers on the spot. Yeo Magnani's adds that for the authorities to admit that they are wrong would be devastating. It would show that their reputations really don't mean that much, that they don't have the scientific background. As Ralph Nader once said, if they admit they're wrong at the fluoridation, people would ask, and legitimately so, what else have they not told us? Right? We, we ask that all the time, don't we? Absolutely. That's why we're here. What else are they not telling us? Accompanying a loss in status would be a tremendous loss in revenue. Uh, the indiscriminate, careless handling of fluoride has a lot of companies, such as Exxon, U.S. Steel, and Alcoa, making tens of billions of dollars in extra profits at our expense. For them to go ahead now and admit that this is bad, this presents a problem, a threat. It would mean tens of billions of dollars in lost profits because they would have to handle the fluoride properly. Fluoride is present in everything from phosphate fertilizers to cracking agents for the petroleum industry. Fluoride could only be legally disposed of at great cost to the industry, as Dr. Bill Marcus explains. There are prescribed methods for disposal, and they're very expensive. Fluoride is a very potent poison. It's registered as a pesticide used for killing rats or mice. If it is to be disposed of, it would require a class one landfill that would cost the people who are producing aluminum or fertilizer about $7,000 for every five to 6,000 gallon truckload to dispose of it. It's highly corrosive. Another problem is that the U.S. judicial system, even when convinced of the dangers, is powerless to change the policy. Yamayanis tells all tells of his involvement in the court cases in Pennsylvania and Texas, in which, while the judges were convinced that fluoride was a health hazard, they did not have the jurisdiction to grant relief from fluoridation. That would have to be done. It was. That would have to be done. It was ultimately found through the legislative process. Interestingly, the judiciary seems to have more power to affect change in other countries. Yamianis states that when ordered, he presented the same technical evidence in Scotland. The Scottish court outlawed fluoridation and it was based on the evidence. I love it. I, I don't love it, but I mean, I love that it's all this is being exposed. It's crazy that they would rather put it into our water and instead of paying, I mean, yeah, it is pricey, 7000 per 5000 to 6000 gallon truckload. My pool that I used to have was like maybe 10,000 gallons. Oh, man. So $7,000 for like half of that. Oh, and you know how much of that they'd be pumping out? Oh, yeah. Oh, definitely. Indeed. Most of Western Europe has rejected fluoridation on the grounds that it's unsafe. In 1971, after 11 years of testing, Sweden's Noble Medical Institute recommended against fluoridation, and the process was banned. The Netherlands outlawed the practice in 1976 after 23 years of tests. France decided against it after consulting 
with its pasture after after its Pasteur Institute, and West Germany, now Germany, rejected the practice because the recommended dosage of 1 ppm was too close to the dosage which long-term damage to the human body is to be expected. Dr. Lee sums it up. All of Western Europe, except one or two test towns in Spain, has abandoned fluoride as a public health plan. It is not put in the water anywhere. They all established test cities and found that the benefits did not occur and the toxicity was evident. Isn't it time that the United States followed Western Europe's example? While the answer is obvious, it is also apparent that the government policy is unlikely to change without public support. We therefore must communicate with legislators and insist on one of our most precious resources, pure, unadulterated drinking water. Yayo Manyanis urges all American people to do so, pointing out that public pressure has gotten fluoride out of the water in places like Los Angeles, Newark, and Jersey City, and New Jersey in Bedford, Massachusetts. He emphasizes the immediacy of the problem. There is no question with regard to fluoridation of public water supplies. It is absolutely unsafe and should be stopped immediately. This is causing more destruction to human health than any other single substance added purposely or inadvertently to the water supply. We're talking about 35,000 excess deaths a year, 10,000 cancer deaths a year, 130 million people who are being chronically poisoned. We're not talking about dropping dead after a glass of fluorinated water it takes its toll on human health and life glass after glass there is also a moral issue in the debate that has largely escaped notice according to columnist james kilpatrick it is the right of each person to control the drugs he or she takes kilpatrick calls fluoridization compulsory mass medication a procedure that violates the principle of medical ethics a new york times editorial agrees in the light of uncertainty, critics of unfluoridation argue the administrative bodies are unjustified in imposing fluoridation on communities without obtaining public consent. The real issue here is not just the scientific debate. The question is whether any establishment has the right to decide that benefits outweigh the risk and impose involuntary medication on an entire population. In the case of fluoridation, the dental establishment has made opposition to the fluoridation seem intellectually indisputable. Some people may regard that as tyranny. I'm one of them. I'm one of them too, man. There shouldn't be a mandatory drug that you take. No, and they're pumping it into us anyway. I mean, while well, speaking of drugs that you, that you don't want to take, the amount of prescription drugs that we take involuntary involuntarily if you're on like a city water from people when they urinate and they're on a bunch of different medications and that goes through the water that doesn't all get filtered out i mean it's that's causing a lot of health problems but standing in front of the mirror in the morning trying to get your breath fresh and your teeth a little whiter shouldn't be causing you your life no it shouldn't be in it and with all that scientific evidence pointing to decades of genetic uh, degradation it it should be evident and stopped immediately check your products um i always like to think that i'm a little bit safer because i'm on a well here but it rains right so i mean we're not all safe just so check your products and make sure see if you can get your toothpaste with without fluoride in it geez you don't need it because especially if you're in an area that's got it in the city water all you're doing is taking more and Gosh, we just want you all to be safe and uh, and have the right information and uh, stop using fluoride. Right. Be educated. Keep your eyes open. Together, uh, we can make a difference. So 
just let your voice be heard. Absolutely. I love it. And with that, I'm Foltz. And I'm Steve. And we'll see you next time. Take care of one another. Bye-bye.